Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Fern Malice. And if you are at all interested in fashion, clothing, retail, or any of the things related to that, uh, you'll find this conversation especially uh, interesting. I wish I would have had more time. I wanted to ask her about some of the changes in the industry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think you'll find this to be really uh, an interesting and fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Fern Malice. My special guest today is Fern Malice. She is the president uh, of fashion and design consultancy Fern Malice LLC. Previously, she was the executive director of the Council of Fashion Designers of America, where she has been awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as uh, other such awards from Pratt Institute and the Fashion Institute of Technology, better known as FIT. She is the creator of Fashion Week in New York. Fern Malice, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your background in fashion. Uh, is this an area you were always interested in, and how did you break into the field? Yes, I guess you could say I was always interested in it. I grew up in Brooklyn. My dad worked in the Garment Center, mm -hmm. uh, and his brothers worked there as well. My dad was in accessories, scarves primarily, and the uncles were in textiles and in sportswear. So Family I grew, business. I grew up. In going going with him to work every time I could, every day off from school to the garment district when it was a bustling, hustling place. All those carts on the street and all those people who knew each other. And, and I learned and I watched and, and I loved it and I loved clothing. So what was your first job where you were working not for a family member? Well, I never worked for a family member, luckily. I just grew up surrounded by them and learned about the industry Apprentice assimilating, at their feet. Um, but my early jobs in high school, my summer jobs were at Simplicity Patterns, mm -hmm. which was a big deal at that time when people used to make their own clothes, and in a department store. Do you ever remember the name Orbax? Oh, sure. On Thirty Fourth Street, I worked in Orbax one summer. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of so, remember one right off of Route Four in New Jersey. Oh, you know, they eventually they they did expand and then they, you know, shut down like everything right. else. Um, <laughs> but those were my first jobs in while I was in school. 
Mm-hmm. But then my first real job was at Mademoiselle Magazine at Condé Nast. So and, what did you do for Mademoiselle? Um, well, I actually, that's how my career really started. I won a contest. Mm-hmm. I was a Mademoiselle guest editor, which was a very big deal when I was growing up. Uh, they picked 20 students from around the country to guest edit their college issue uh-huh. and come to New York for a month. Uh, today, it would be a reality TV show with 20 girls out to kill each other in some <laughs> apartment to get the job or the boyfriend. Right. And it was an extraordinary experience. Sylvia Plath was a guest editor, Ali McGraw, Betsy Johnson, all before me. And and before they were famous. But, well, before they, when they were in college, getting mm-hmm. out of the, getting in the junior or senior year of college. And I was at the University of Buffalo, came back and did my my guest editorship, and then I was the only one of my 20 in that group that was asked to stay on at the magazine with a full-time job. So what did you do with the magazine going forward after that? Going forward, I was in the college competitions area and then merchandising and marketing. Um, But in the college comp area, it was very interesting because we're talking 1970, 71. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 69. I'm being revealing my age here when people do the math. but. It was when the world was coming apart. It was Vietnam War. It was craziness. And so going to college campuses to talk about a fashion magazine, and and Mademoiselle was more than a fashion magazine. It was really the thinking woman's magazine in its time. It was one of the best books in the Condé Nast stable. So you started post-fringe but pre-polyester? Is that a fair? Yeah, uh, yeah, you could say that. (laughs) And, And it was a great experience. And then when I moved into the merchandising area, I in my 20s, was traveling to every single state in the country, going to department stores when they all had regional names and identities Mm -hmm. before they were all bought by Macy's, and doing store events, bringing the magazine to life. It was a great experience. So how did you go from working for a magazine to setting up your own consultancy? What was in between that? There were several things in between that including working for Gimbel's East as fashion director uh-huh. on the Uptown store when that was there. Um, I worked on 7th Avenue for a short time. I hated that side of the business. Um, Why? What was what was the problem with that? I, you know, I like... It was the nitty-gritty, not the no, actual fashion side? I didn't like side, selling. Or? I liked being right. the one people wanted to come to. I, I, it just wasn't the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I opened up a PR firm, um, and I basically did that because I thought, I had 9411 on my forehead. Everybody right. would call me for, where do I get this? How do I get that? Can you connect me with this? Can you? Do? I was like, what am I, central booking information here? Right. And I realized I could get paid for that information. So I opened up a PR firm in my friend's offices who were architects and interior designers. Right. And at the time, to place it contextually, they were designing Studio 54. Okay. So that was a fun, heady time to be around them. And I, this is mid to late seventies now. Yes, and we, I had a PR firm, and I started representing. The first one was a fashion client was Sheravari store mm-hmm. that was very famous on the West Side, Selma Weiser, and a few other fashion friends. And then it shifted to architecture and interior design, and uh, representing all the major furniture companies and textile companies because I love that world. I love the whole design world, how it all connects and lifestyle. And I then ran, left that to join one of my clients, which was the IDCNY, mm-hmm. International Design Center in New York in Long Island City. Mm-hmm. It was right over the bridge. It was a 
extraordinary project building a million square feet of showrooms for the interior furnishings industry. And we helped build that. And I was very much involved in that, working with I am paying partners and Guafi oh, really? Siegel and um, I am and uh, the Vignellis who did the graphics. It was a wonderful time in my life. IDC opened a building in New York now, didn't they? No, they. What am I thinking gone. of? Uh, it's either the decorator and design well, building. Well, yes, there are several design buildings in mm -hmm. New York, but There's, it's not IDC. No, related. it's not IDC. IDC was competition to all those buildings Got in it. Long Island City, and people were very nervous that everybody was going to go to over the bridge. Um, How'd that work out? It didn't work out. <laughs> you know, going over the bridge in New York, if you're if you're not going to the airport or going home, <laughs> you don't cross the water. Right. I mean, in Chicago, Paris, everywhere else, you're crossing right. water all day long. Does, no one thinks twice no, about it. No, but Chicago. It. But New York, it didn't work. And we had, they were closing lanes of the bridge all the time. I recall and that. they really screwed it up Did big they? time. Uh, it was a multi-million dollar complex, and it still is one of the most extraordinary set of buildings. The old factories that were retrofitted to design showrooms, the best architects in the world designed them all. Um, and now that whole area is hot as a pistol. Now, that was pre-Amazon. Are you kidding? It now, if I wish when I was there that I bought property in Long Island City. Before Amazon. Time, before Amazon. They were building Amazon. huge. Yeah. Now, the Citibank was the first building that's right, that went up that's there. That's exactly that right. Was, you know, we thought, okay, when's the rest of this going to happen? But it took a long, long time. Okay, By I the could, way, you mentioned um, department stores that are no longer with us. Let's test your memory. We're standing in a building. We're sitting in a building. Alexander's. Alexander. That's exactly right. By the way, Alexander's is the store I was thinking of on Route 4 that had the giant, was it a Calder? It was a giant piece of artwork that on the I, outside of the building. I don't remember. On Route 4, I want to say just past Hackensack, but I was a kid way See, I don't go Route 4. I'm not in Hackensack. <laughs> you don't, right. Bridge and tunnels. You never leave uh, Manhattan unless you go into the Hamptons. That's the, mm -hmm. uh, not to, or, or an airport. So let's talk about before Fashion Week. What was the state of the fashion industry before this event existed? Well, before Fashion Week was formally created and organized, centralized, and modernized, which is what I like to say um, we did, there were fashion shows. I mean, the industry had its biannual timetable to get its collections out in front of buyers, but it was a very, very exclusive insider event. If you weren't in the industry, you didn't know about it. If you went by a building on 7th Avenue, you might think, what's going on there? There's a line outside getting in right. or something. Uh, if there were 50 shows, they were in 50 different locations, and nobody talked to each other. It was uptown, downtown, midtown. You know, if somebody had a show in the Pierre Hotel in the morning, they'd have to take everything down in the afternoon because somebody had a bar mitzvah there that night. <laughs> and then somebody wanted to rent it again the next day, you'd put it all back in there. It was a bit chaotic. Um, Sounds but, complicated and expensive also. And it was complicated, expensive, and it was it was at a time when the American designers weren't really well-known and reaching out to Europe. The, the biggest uh, European expansion was Calvin Klein maybe doing fragrance. So I'm glad you brought that up because I'm now my perspective on this is colored by pop culture and movies like uh, The Devil Wears Prada. But you very much get the sense that both Paris and Milan were much more structured and organized 
it, or is that just you know? No, pop that's culture? the truth. Paris and Milan were the that that's where it was. That what that's what it was about. London, a little bit. New York was a somewhat of an afterthought. Right. New York was treated as their last on the calendar. They're waiting to see what we do in Europe, and they're going right. to copy us. And it was it was crazy. So I had just been hired. Uh, this is back in '91. I was selected as the executive director of the CFDA mm-hmm. after they did a very long search. After I left the design universe of IDCNY and all of that, right? And there was this little organization, the CFDA, which had done a big AIDS benefit called Seventh on Seventh on Sale, and that's when I got involved with them, and I was hired as their executive director. It was March of '91. And I believe that, I don't remember exactly, I was hired at the end of March. I didn't start till mid-April. There was a market week, fashion week, mm-hmm. in between. Michael Kors had a show in an empty loft space in Chelsea. And when you turn the bass music on in a space for a fashion show, it's very loud. And if things aren't nailed down, they tend to tremble. <laughs> right. Well, the ceiling trembled. <laughs> and plaster started falling off from the ceiling and the ceiling literally was falling down on the runway he brought the roof down he, well there you go he brought <laughs> the roof down and plaster was on the shoulders of naomi and cindy and linda and all the one named supermodels of the day right. but when the, but they kept walking right but when it landed in the laps of susie mancus from the international herald tribune carrie donovan the fashion critic at the new york times they wrote the next day, we live for fashion, we don't want to die for it. <laughs> That's very and, funny. And I looked at all that and I said, I think my job description just changed. And it be, my job then started immediately when I got there to figure out a way to do safe sound places for the American designers to do their runway shows. So the concept was, let's get all this together in one place, one location, one week, make it safe, make it accessible, make it more reasonable and more efficient. Yeah, amortize the costs for everybody. And So how did you end up finding your way to Bryant Park? Which, if we're talking 91, Bryant Park was still... Still a, a little seedy. A little down, yeah, yeah, on the, it, on but the it, edge. But it was on... It, it was in the last throes of its renovation. And but the restaurant people, wasn't there. Right, for people who are not familiar with this, Bryant Park is basically the full city block behind the New York Public Library in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was very much a, a haven for drugs and Needle crimes. Park. Right, Needle Park. And um, when I used to visit my dad's office on Madison Avenue, he would say, if you're coming in by train, don't go up 40th Street. Right. And now my office is on 40th Street, it's, which is pretty it's, amazing. It's one of the most beautiful urban renovations a gem. ever. An, a jewel of the city. It is It is a very, very special place. And the lawn there, was it was like the backyard to the garment center because mm-hmm. it was a block away from... 7th Avenue, Broadway, where all the showrooms were. Right. It was walking distance to everything. There was lots of public transportation and subways. Block away from Times Square, two blocks from Grand Central. I mean, you don't get a Perfectly better located. location yeah, than Bryant Park. It's pretty much smack dab in the center of the city. You can get to it from anywhere easily. Yeah, and so we, we began, uh, my job became find a place. So I was riding around New York. I'd look at every empty pier, every right. big parking lot. Could we put tents up here? How big could we do this? Um, Stan Herman, who was the president of the CFDA, 
office is actually on the corner of 40th and, and 6th overlooking Bryant Park. And he was on the board of the community board there and worked closely with Dan Biederman, who I know you've interviewed. Right. He, he, he helped ran do the, the bid redesign. for the Bryant yep. Park. Business Improvement and District. And we wound up eventually making a deal with, with Dan and with Bryant Park. It was literally the backyard to the to the industry. People loved it there. And I used to, for, again, for people who may not have actually seen this, and you could find time-lapse photography yeah, about it's it. it's pretty impressive. The park goes from this big open space that's, I don't know, let's call it half a city block, and that's the lawn, and suddenly a giant set of tents go up and a little city. It's now bad. what they do is in the winter there's a ice skating rink and a, a, a lodge that's temporary. And lots within, of little shops. Right. Or, well, that, they disappear January 15th, so they're gone already. Yeah. But you still have urban space there, and you still have the ice skating rink. But if you watched Fashion Week show up, it was an amazing bit of logistics to build it. And then you could go see the video, and you don't really... you. It's hard to imagine that this is a temporary space when you see uh, images from the fashion show, it always looks amazing. So how? what was it like setting up that first one? It was pretty extraordinary. Uh, I mean, we had started first at the Maclow Hotel, which was the then became the Millennial Hotel, just to see if we can get more than three designers to do something together, because mm -hmm. their egos are such that nobody wants to do anything in the same space. But they realized is that a real genuine problem when trying to coordinate this? That was a problem at the this? beginning, absolutely. Who is first? Is there jockeying for oh, best God, slots yes. and everything? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. it's the war room with the with the <laughs> slots and moving the post-its around till you got a calendar that worked. See, that's the wedding <laughs> where all sorts of crazy stuff and you had to deal with that only oh, yeah. with much bigger egos. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> um, but but they understood at the beginning that this was going to if this is going to work we all have to do it together so the first seasons we did have calvin klein in the tents and donna karen and ralph lauren um who eventually those designers moved out to do their own thing mm -hmm. which was fine but it helped get this off the ground we invited all the european press and buyers to come and it changed the world and it changed the fashion industry how long did it take before you realized hey we have something here oh it didn't take long at all it, it it happened very quickly, and it it I'm extremely proud of what that meant to these people and to the industry and to our city and our culture. Uh, but that first season, that first sound check when the music really went blasting, you know, goosebumps all over. You know, you just couldn't believe it was really happening. We did a ribbon cutting with Dinkin and Mayor Dinkin's wife. Let's talk a little bit about the business of fashion, because after all, um, it is a business whose purpose is to sell products to consumers. How do you look at the world of fast fashion? After there's a show in Paris or Milan, it seems two weeks later, there are cheap knockoffs from China hanging on the racks in the U.S. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? How do we, how do we think about this? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're a consumer who wants to buy something really fast and of the moment and that's really inexpensive it's a great thing if you're a designer and you know a a company with integrity who plays by the rules of time and place and making something and putting out a quality product it's not such a good thing if you're into sustainable fashion and in the industry it's not such a good thing because there's a ton of stuff that's being made that 
is filling landfills. Right. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of problems, but fast fashion has woken up a lot of people. I mean, the H&Ms of the world and Topshop and Zara's and what have you. Um, but the customer who's buying that is not the customer who's buying really designer clothes. People know the difference. Mm -hmm. The luxury business right now is doing very well. The LVMHs, the um, Louis Vuitton, Chanel. I never really thought of fast fashion as a threat to the either aspirational luxury or full-on luxury, but I do look at e-commerce and everything being online, as well as things like Rent the Runway and Preta Porter as potentially satisfying some of the demand for those products. How does the industry look at either e-commerce or high-end pre-owned or even rentable um, fashion? I think those are all the different aspects of the industry that have evolved over the years. Um, I think, you know, Rent the Runway is a brilliant business. Jennifer Hyman started, I worked with her at IMG. We were mm -hmm. there at the same time. Um, it's quite remarkable. Re the rental business period is becoming a big, big business because people, it's all so sustainable also. You don't need to buy this stuff. You don't need to right. own it in your closet. Um, all of that is great. But e-commerce is very much a part of everybody's business. Even the, the highest end luxury people that everybody's available on e-commerce one way or another, whether it's their own site or they're part of Matches Fashion or Net-A-Porter or mm -hmm. uh, some of the very big um, conglomerates, you know, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, who, you know, who put all the different looks together, Farfetch'd, who has all the different stores on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the e-commerce, the online business is enormous. This holiday season, it was huge. And... What that is hurting more than anything is the retail experience. Um, so it's forcing stores again, at least smart stores, to rethink what they're doing and to create an experience to make shopping matter again. Um, I mean, it, it's very sad when you look, walk around New York and you see all the for rent signs. You know, Lord & Taylor's just closed down. Mm -hmm. Um for, just the headquarters now. Well, we just works. the New York store, yes, right. but but that still was an iconic sure. New York store. Um, the the Versace store is closing on on Fifth Avenue. Um, there's all sorts of stores going out everywhere. The Gap store is closing on Fifth Avenue, um, but retailers are looking at creating experiences again. I know Saks Fifth Avenue is going under major renovation. They've moved, you know, accessories up and handbags down and cosmetics at another sec up to another floor. They've just bringing in a very fancy restaurant from France, La Avenue. They're trying to create reasons for people to come back into the stores, and I think that's a good thing. And e-commerce companies like Rent the Runway have begun to open retail outposts. Right. So there's still there's still people like going to a place and seeing it, trying it on, and having that experience. I previously had a conversation with Barbara Kahn, who's a professor at Wharton, and she was telling us about some of the new technology that's come in where, you know, when you shop at Amazon, they have this huge informational advantage. If you click this, well, we could tell you what everybody else looked at. These are the three most popular ingredients of uh, or objects or items, not ingredients. These are the three most popular items for other people who bought this, uh, what Professor Khan was saying is you could they're using RF radio tags, 
and a smart mirror. And when you bring an item in certain stores into the dressing room, the mirror will act very similar to the way Amazon did and said, people who looked at this item also looked at this belt, this scarf, this accessory, and not only are they getting a higher percentage of sales, but they're also getting a higher percentage of add-ons and other things, which is a long-winded way of asking, what is the role of technology in fashion? It's a huge part of the fashion industry. It's a huge part of every industry. I mean, technology has changed the way we do everything. It's a little bit of Big Brother watching you in a way, mm. and it's a little bit scary some some days. You know, if you just look at something online, the next time you open up your computer, ten sites jump in your face. Right. Like, are you looking for a tote bag? You know, here, I'm, whatever. It's I, I, it's invasive. It's a, it's, it is scary. That's a generational thing. You and I hate that. Younger folks, they could care less about it. P.S. I've discovered that if I log out of Facebook while I'm online, that sort of stuff happens much less because Facebook tracks everything you do on Facebook, off Facebook, and they're the ones who are serving you a lot of that uh, stuff. Just. Just make a note. So I of guess that. I should be happy that I've been I've been hacked on Facebook like six seven months ago. Yeah. And I can't I can't get back on. It, no matter what I've tried, everything connecting with everybody under the sun, and I have two two pages a you know a, a verified one and a personal one. And right. They ha- they hacked both of them. I I can't, I cannot log on to Facebook. I hey. get messages all day long from people on emails. So and so commented on. I said I can't see any of it. So if anybody's listening from Facebook, Zuck, come on, let's get on this. Please tell me how to get. I'm. This you're is lo- for you're, lose, you're losing you gotta... a good good customer <laughs> here. I'd like to be back on. Well, we'll forward this to someone there and make sure they. Uh, if it was Twitter, I could help you. I I have no contacts that. Uh, actually, that's not true. I do have contacts at Facebook, but I don't know if I can help you with it. Um, after I slag them constantly about being such a. Uh, uh, we'll say something nice about Facebook. <laughs> Um, so let's let's we talked about e-commerce. This raises a really interesting question: Is fashion and clothing the sort of thing that people are always going to go into a store for, or can you have, or will we eventually get to the point where the stores become virtual and people don't have to go physically shopping? No, that'll never happen. That's your forecast. That's never going to happen. Stores are going to persist. Stores they're going to adapt. Will, they're they're. Go- the, the smart ones will adapt mm-hmm. and and change and evolve as any smart business. But I think you still want to go and see and touch and feel. And if you can make the experience unique and service be an important part of it. I mean, I'm a little nervous in New York. In a few months, there's a new Neiman Marcus is going to open up in the city and a Nordstrom's in this year. I mean, those are two. Giant serious department stores opening in New York City in a time when people are just nervous about shopping and going to stores. Are we saturated with big department stores in New York City? No, I don't think we are at all. That's why I think this is going to be interesting, having the two of them open. But it's going to be interesting. I I don't want to pass judgment. I don't want to predict. We'll see. Nordstrom's is new to New York. There's There's a men's store that opened first. But that's has a very different culture, and Neiman Marcus 
is going to open in Hudson Yards. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's going to be interesting. It's not a place with a lot of foot traffic yet. Not yet, anyway. It's got to be a destination. Although there's certainly between the High Line and everything else that's over there, there's certainly a ton of tourist traction making its way near the Hudson Yards. It's really not all that far away from that. Um, you you mentioned um, Nordstrom. I know Nordstrom in suburbia from Nordstrom Rack. Uh, how do you, although that's not true because I've gone to the Nordstrom that is in, uh, is it Roosevelt Field? I don't go to malls, so I don't remember. Right. But I've been in Nordstrom's and Nordstrom Rack, which raises the question, what do you think about the sort of outlet center shopping that has blown up over the past, I don't know, 20 years. For a while, I think this still happens in New York, the tourists would get on a bus and drive an hour and a half north to go to the giant outlet center that's up in uh, just north of White Plains. I know, I'm trying to think Woodbury of Commons. Woodbury Commons. Yeah. And uh, it took me a while to access that. But um, I literally busloads of people go up there to go shopping. Is that a viable business? Is it the same clothes that you see in the main stores? What what are your thoughts about um, outlets? It's definitely a viable business, and Woodbury Commons is quite phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of stores they have, and they they create those shopping um, destinations, cities, right? Yeah, um, to replicate the the headquarters stores, so it's not just a bunch of racks of clothes somewhere. You know, you feel like you're in a Burberry, you feel like you're in a in a you know a Barney's or whatever's up there. It's high end names too. It's, it's not just, but it's not the same merchandise that you can find in the current lines. It's it's generally past season or it's um and in many cases there's a separate business companies make stuff for right. the outlet stores they make other lines that you can't even buy anywhere else so that they're a lower price um i don't think those customers getting on the buses at you know um the big hotels in the at, city uh, at the what's the bus term what's across the street from the times what's it called the bus terminal oh um, um port authority port authority thank you um they are busloads of people, like you say, tourists, and a lot of Asians um, mm-hmm. fill up those buses and go there. They mar- they market to people. You so know, to tourists come there. here from China and Japan and elsewhere, and part of the week or two they spend in the United States is a bus pulls up in front of the hotel as part of their vacation, and they go up to the Woodbury Outlet Centers that's to do what shopping. It, that's what my understanding is. I was up there years and years ago, in fact, to do a radio show mm-hmm. for WOR with Joan Hamburg oh, years sure. ago. We did it from Woodbury Commons. And it it always intrigues me that I should go there, but I, I, I don't have time Got to cross a bridge. Got to cross some water, <laughs> and we know you won't do that. Airports in, ha- in the Hamptons. We got that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the power of brands. How important are brands, whether it's a designer, a manufacturer, or a retailer, do brands still carry the same cachet and power that they used to? Well, that depends on the brand. You know, I mean, the sneak, the biggest thing in the world now is sneakers. Mm-hmm. You know, from whether it's Nike, Adidas, uh, whomever. Um, you know, I, I, I notice you're wearing a pair of Yeezys. I am um, not Kanye. wearing Yeezys. <laughs> Get out of here. When you have nothing else to do, Google Fern Mellis oh, I, and Kanye West. Trust me, that's why I brought that up. <laughs> I know you guys have had a, a falling out and a reconciliation. And well, we just had a, a little... Brouhaha. Yeah, a brouhaha. No, 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 no squirmish. And I purposely did not wear my... I'm a sneakerhead, and I purposely did not wear 
anything today. Those are very cool sneakers. Well, but these they're kind are, of uh, like a sneaker. Yeah, the, uh, these are all birds. They're wool. They're kind of funky yeah. online things, but um. But brands, I, and, but brands matter to some people. Some people are very brand conscious. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the the phenomena of Supreme having a name on something sure. and a line outside that store. It's crazy. But you know what seems to be resonating more with people now are brands and companies that stand for something and give back and have a moral purpose for existing. People are really looking for some attachment to a company and why they're doing certain things. Like when Nike did took their stand with Kaepernick. Colin and, Kaepernick. I Can mean, I push uh, back on you sure, with that? Sure, push me back. And then we'll talk about Gillette. So yeah. think about the people who were pro and con Colin Kaepernick. The people who were all up in arms uh, over them taking a knee, they're red state folks, they're lower disposable income folks, they're older. That's not Nike's core demographic. Nike's core demographic are young, hip. I mean, I I think the number was 75% of their sales went to people under 35. But the business went through the roof after that. It was a genius. It was the best marketing um, moment of 2018. It was totally insightful. It it was... It was emotional. It was the right thing to do. Sure. You know, and that's what resonates with a brand when they do that. That's when you really want to support a company. So now we're recording this the day after Nike did their big release about their uh, sneakers that lace up automatically for $360. I haven't seen them yet, but it was all over the How press. How did I miss that? Is that- uh, yesterday, Wired so Verge. Your- so you get your automatic lace-up sneakers and go in your driverless car, right? Right. So you have a button over here. You can loosen it or tighten it. And there's also what makes it so interesting is it comes with an app for your phone <laughs> that tracks your activity, your calories, burn your miles, all that stuff. So it's a smart sneaker, not just a self-lacing sneaker. And if you're engaging in sports, this wasn't supposed to be an ad for Nike, but um, I'll speak to Phil Knight whenever he wants. When you move and play a sport, the sneaker actually adapts to what you're doing to provide better support and, you know, the technology. That's crazy. It, well, think about the first time you tried on a dry fit shirt where they it wicks the water away. If you're, you mentioned Dinkins playing tennis, if you've ever played a sport where you're just drenched and your clothes stick to you. And, and the it's technology so is brilliant. It's with amazing. Textiles and it really is just fascinating. Do. So... Back to brands, brands that are innovative and pushing the envelope and stand for something, you're telling us this really makes a difference. It resonates, yes. What about, have you seen the Gillette ad? I about, saw some of the brouhaha on that. I, I, I might, now maybe I'm just a New York liberal East Coast, you know, socialist summer camps, the line from the Woody Allen movie. <laughs> um, I, I watched that ad, I'm like, I don't understand what the... Hey, don't let your kids bully other kids. What's there to complain about? Well, apparently we're on our little Manhattan Island bubble, so we see the world differently than some other folks. Well, I hope they they stay with that because I think that kind of advertising marketing is brilliant. I mean, we need more of that everywhere. that, that, That universe needs to get those messages out. So when you stop and think about it, whether you whether you are a snowflake who's triggered by one of these things or you think it's fine or anything in between, if you just think about it from an advertising and marketing perspective, we're talking about Gillette and that's a win for them. Absolutely. Everything is so saturated and cluttered to break through 
is not easy to do. You're absolutely right. So bravo to these companies for doing that. Let's for now stick with the business of fashion and, and what sort of changes are coming our way. You mentioned issues in retailing, um, and we talked earlier about fast fashion. What other changes do you see coming um, to this industry? Some of the things that I see on the horizon are a lot of designers and a lot of people doing what we want to call um, genderless fashion, mm -hmm. clothing that is designed for a man or woman. There's a lot of that starting to happen. Really? I've seen that with sneakers. What else is genderless? Sweaters, tops, pants. I mean, really? what makes Aren't it... Really? are the fits different? No, it depends on how, how it's designed. There's a lot of that happening now, uh -huh. and I think it's I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of seasonless clothing that is year-round because of the technology and textiles and the layering of clothing. There's also a lot more size inclusivity happening where... What does that mean? Define what, that. For many years, all the good brands and designer clothes you'd buy would, if I'm talking women now, mm -hmm. you know, you'd go up to maybe a size 12, maybe a 14. Really? Now they're going up to all the plus sizes being included and creating collections for big girls and people who who are not... Model size zero and two, four, six. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's a huge, the, I think 14 or 16 is the biggest size in America of the most people. And most designers average, don't even address, the, address that. You mentioned plus size models. That seems to be a that's very That's a big growing... part of Fashion Week now when you see it and advertising. When you look at all the ads, they're girls across the spectrum from nice and thin and lovely to big and beautiful and proud of it. Mm -hmm. Ashley Graham has opened up doors for lots of people when she became the first plus-size model, I think, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Wasn't, uh, um, I'm going to get her name wrong, was it Kate Hudson? One of the swimsuit models was considered plus-size, and you look at her, and she's gorgeous and not what you would really think of right. as... It's been a very interesting industry that's been about that thin, skinny, you know, waif. And now... They're more zoftic and beautiful and, and proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and in fashion now and, and at the shows, you see more inclusivity of, of, and diversity of black models and Asian models and Indian models and people of all the different ethnic cultures. I mean, that's who the customer is. That's who the world is. And designers who, you know, put out that one you know, I don't one blonde girl with straight blonde hair, you know, sixty girls walking it. That's not what it's about. And so there's been a demand in the industry and the, and the customers and the media have really gotten fired up and said, "Come on, like let's reflect what's happening in the world." And I think that that's all really good positive changes for the fashion industry. And I'll, it'll be interesting to see this fashion week that's coming up. Um, how again how how that plays out because the runway becomes a big bulletin board for what's happening so that raises a really interesting question how important are the runway shows and and events like fashion week to a selling the latest designs but b also being an influencer on culture and society well, I think the importance of Fashion Week and the fashion shows is is changing. Um, I think we're in a very 
disruptive moment in fashion. People aren't quite sure um, if they should be doing shows and spending the large amounts of money for it. But it still is a vehicle that generates millions of Instagram moments. You know, so it's become a vehicle for social media to really get the message out or the look out. And that's the good news, bad news in my mind, because I'm still of that generation, like you say, that I, I wasn't born with an iPhone in my hand. Right. And, you know, and I think eventually it's, it's all changing so much. I mean, I you sit at a fashion show and I find it very frustrating that hardly anybody's looking at the runway. They're looking at their phone and they're photographing everything. And instead of looking at the real thing happening, they're looking at it in a two-inch by three inch little frame you have and, to be present and then like, put it down you know just look at what you look what's in front of you it's like, i really admire concerts where you hear people where they say no phones allowed yeah, they i just saw um who was it i just saw a show with oh i'm drawing a blank on his name i'll, I'll figure it out i went to a show recently where everybody puts their phone in a bag and I actually left the phone um, in the car so I didn't have to deal with it because I thought there'd be a giant line. It turned out it's just a little magnet and they pop it open. It really, there are people like Dave Chappelle who appears in various right. places, right. will not allow, Asaf Manji is another one. I mean, you look at these things, all you see is a sea of arms in the in the air and right. you can't even see who's performing because you got to look through everybody's arms to the pictures they're taking. Right. What do they do with all that footage and all those pictures? The, it goes up to Apple um, or Google uh, photos somewhere. and they never look at it again. The concept of being present in the moment and participating in what's happening right now, I think the current generation, while they have a lot to speak for they're they're motivated they're intelligent they see the world um in ways that we may not sometimes it feels like they're missing that moment because mm -hmm. they're trying to instagram it right and everybody's designing things for that instagrammable moment you go to any party now or opening for something it's no longer just the step and repeat wall where they're taking pictures with the brand's name on there right they're finding some unique visual that conveys something they're doing and that's the place where everybody they expect or want everybody to take their picture you know to take their selfie not a picture not even a, a not even a real picture take right. your own picture in front of that that instagrammable spot you know and that's how the world is viewed now through instagram so fashion week becomes a place where everybody wants to quickly say i'm out you know i'm there i was there i that's the best look Smart companies understand how to track data and and use that information and, and can say, this was the biggest look that came out of that show. This is what we should get behind, you know, and this is something we should maybe, you know, do a bigger production run on. You know, if you could use the information correctly, I think that there's some value in it. But, uh, you know, but otherwise Fashion Week is... is Fashion shows are still the best way to see a designer's vision uh, come to fruition from head to toe. What are they thinking? What's their, what's their look? What's their point of view? But I question now, who's, who are you doing it for? Who's, I, again, I'm getting too old now. I mean, I used to go and I, you know, everybody in the front row and then the second row and maybe even the third row. Now you go, who are these people? You know, I didn't know there was a job called influencer when I was growing up. 
I would have applied. Well, when you and I were growing up, that wasn't a job. That didn't exist pre-internet, pre-mobile, pre-cell phone. Um, I forgot. I don't remember the brand, but I read uh, something not too long ago. It might have been in Wired magazine that even ice cream companies are changing all their labeling on the packages so they're Instagrammable. Like, oh, look how nice this is. Take a photo. Mm -hmm. And that's free marketing and advertising for them. So the idea of actually building something from the ground up, you're going to get lost in a sea of competition. But if you can get in front of enough people via Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or what have you, it's a leg up. Yeah, I mean, models are hired and booked for shows based on how many Instagram followers they have. You know, models and people, celebrities, used to have to build a career. Now they build their their own platform. They do it all by themselves. You know, models have tell their story without, you don't have to wait for them to be on 15 Vogue covers to have right. a career. They reach out and they do their story and they have millions of followers. I'm but, gonna... you know, in Instagram, there was a, one of my favorite jokes I saw was on, um, I think it must have been a New Yorker cartoon of a couple of people, a couple at a table in a restaurant eating. And the chef walks over to them and looks at them and says, what's the matter? Didn't you like the food? And they said, well, yeah. They said, because nobody was took a picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm trying to pronounce her name. Emily Radajkowski, mm-hmm. who was in the Blurred Lines video. I think she has some like 4 million or 5 oh, million insane, Twitter followers. It's um, it, it's really shocking, and that is here. I could actually pull it up while we're her official. Oh, I'm wrong. One point three million. So, but still, that's a million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, she got famous long before that, but at a certain point, if you want a career in fill in the blank, having the ability to influence or attract in the modern era. Being adept at marketing, especially online and social networks, is a huge, huge advantage for anybody pretty much in any career. At I risk at mansplaining agree. that, but it seems to be a big, big part of that, uh, many industries. It is. Well, that's how people get their information online and on a screen, on a cell phone. On, I mean, I have nieces who don't ever turn television on. They watch everything on their computer, on their laptops. I mean, never, never have TV on. So so what does all of this mean for the future of fashion and clothing if people aren't watching TV, if they're not paying attention to what's going on around them? How do um, companies and manufacturers and advertisers reach the the audience? Well, you know, how it affects them all. I mean, at the end of the day, people are still wearing clothing. Right. You know, people haven't. Although last week they, I guess, walked out on the subways with no pants on or something. There was some. It was a big deal. No right. pant day or something. Right. But people are still getting up every day and putting clothing on, and they're still wearing clothes. They still buy things. So the industry is not going too far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but how people reach out to them—that's that's a good question. I mean, you have to be, you have to hire smart and bright and. Um, and I and you have to get into that head of that millennial and some of those young people who are really out there thinking, coming up with clever ideas. You have to create experiences and you have to create something that resonates. And that's why I said it's whether it's resonating about the environment and things that matter to people, 
this generation is finally caring about the environment because it's the planet that they're they're growing up in. And I think there's more and more attention to that, mm-hmm. learning about that, brands that are making a, a real concerted effort to do something that is sustainable and correct. Um, and we're all still learning about that and don't even know what all those words mean. Um, you know, I'm on the board of the FIT Foundation, um, and our gala this year in April is honoring is focusing on sustainability. It's going to be surrounded by a conference for two days about the issue of sustainability with great people speaking. Um, it's all about the the young generation. These kids in school, they care about that. They they recycle. They don't. They they really work things through. And companies have to start having a message that matters. Um, and I think that that's where somehow those messages get through, you know. Can you stick around a bit? I have a bunch more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with Fern Malice of the Fern Malice Consultancy and fashion icons uh, at the 92nd Street Y. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things fashion. You can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can check out my daily column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Welcome to the podcast. Fern, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation. I was going to drag my wife in because um, she spent a long time teaching fashion illustration and design um, and is since retired. But uh, there's a bunch of other things I wanted to get to that I didn't, including fashion icons with Fern Malice. So let's talk a little bit about the series you do at the 92nd Street Y. How did the idea for this come up? And and tell us a little about the program. Well, I'm very, very proud of this this series. Almost as proud as I am of having created Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. Um, That's saying something. Yeah, I know. It really means a lot to me. Um, When I left IMG Fashion, when the tents were moving from Bryant Park to Lincoln Center, Mm -hmm. it was time for me to leave. I said, you know what? I've done this for almost 19 years at Bryant Park. It was my baby. 
It's moving to a new location, which I wasn't thrilled basically with. so thrilled with. Yeah. Neither was the industry, uh-huh. and it's out of there already. Um, I said, you know what? I need a break, and so I took I took time off. I was happily able to do that, um, and I experienced what I call, and it's in my book because I have a book called Fashion Lives from this series. Um, what became the coffee phase of my life, which meant that all of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm trying to just chill and enjoy my house in the country, and and I'd get calls. Can I meet you for a cup of coffee? I have this idea I want to talk to you about. I have this new project coming up. Can we go out for a cup of coffee? Uh, my friend told me I should talk to you. You're a good one to help me on this new startup. Can we have a cup of coffee? I said, everybody wanted to take me out for a cup of coffee. Nobody wanted lunch or dinner. It was just coffee. <laughs> Coffee's cheaper. I, I was crazy. <laughs> um, and it was oddly enough over a cup of tea at a good friend of mine, a photographer, Timothy Greenfield Sanders, who said, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine, Betsy, who's uh, who handles speaking tours and all this. You have great stories and to tell about. P.S. She introduces me to Susan Engel from 92nd Street Y, who's head mm-hmm. of their programming. And we have a cup of coffee. And she said, you know, we've always loved fashion up here at the Y. We've done one-offs, you know. Diane von Furstenberg's been up here, or this one, or Calvin through the years. But nothing that's been concrete like a series. And they do have some very good series there. And for people who don't know, the 92nd Street Y is truly the preeminent cultural institution in New York. I mean, presidents, prime ministers, authors, actors, celebrities, anybody doing anything that matters, it gets up there and and is interviewed or talks to somebody in their auditoriums. Um, it's extraordinary place. You can go there 350 days a year and and Something there a different night every, every night. Every night there's yeah. something. Politics, it's unbelievable. So Susan said, would you be interested in interviewing fashion designers and doing something with us? <clears throat> and I said, you know, I'm the, usually the one being interviewed, but I'm sure I could string together some intelligent questions. We named it Fashion Icons with Fern Malice, and she said, let's see if we can get some good people. So the first one was Norma Kamali, and who's an old pal, mm-hmm. old pal, and I think one of the most creative designers in the world. And the next one was Calvin Klein. And when I had Calvin on the stage, I said to him, one of my first questions to him was, why are you doing this? You're out of your business. You sold it at that moment. It was like over 10 years ago. You have nothing to sell and pitch, no new fragrance, nothing coming out. And he said, I'm doing it because you asked me. And I'm doing it for you. And I'm doing it because the why, you know, he talked about how important the why was. And I was like, good answer. And that kicked off this series where people buy tickets and there's like eight or nine hundred people in the auditorium and it's been calvin and donna and tommy hilfiger and uh, tom ford and mark jacobs and andre leontali and diane and it just goes on and on and on and it's now in my eighth year no kidding how many are you doing a year i do maybe it depends scheduling is a nightmare some years it's six or seven some years it's 10, some years it's three. So um, you're not too far away from 100. Well, I'm 40, 43 in that, Micah. Okay. I think I have 43. I have a lot of people on the horizon, but dates are not confirmed. But I I mean, in addition to the people I mentioned, I've done Leonard Lauder, you know, who was one an extraordinary interview, Mr. Mm-hmm. Valentino, Victoria Beckham, Iman and Cindy Crawford and the Masonis and um, Alexander Wang and Zach Posen. And wow. I mean, just... The whole 
the whole this group. I just did Arthur, Arthur Elgore, the photographer. Uh -huh. um, in December, I did Peter Marino, the architect, who talk about retail. Is retail important? On one street in Manhattan, from 57th Street, from Madison to 5th, he's designed the Fendi store, the Dior uh -huh. store, the Chanel store, the Xenia store, the Louis Vuitton store, and Bulgari. Wow. It's one architect and his office has done all of that in that one whole block. block. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. And creating experiences that make you want to come in those stores and spend time there and buy something. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's the width and breadth of the industry. Um, so if people want to find either the video or audio of Fashion Icons with Fern Malice at the 92nd Street you, Y, where do they go for you that? You can go to the 92Y's YouTube channel and put mm -hmm. in Fern Malice and Fashion Icons, and you can get um, like a three to five minute clip. Um, the whole interview is not available. Well, when are we going to make that available? You know, this whole I podcasting thing I'm is going to be big on one day. Yeah. We have to have you actually I put... Know. And how long are these conversations? 45 minutes, an hour? 60, 90 minutes. Really? Usually an hour and a half. And, uh, and it's I, their life story. It's, it is the definitive <clears throat> interview of these people's lives. You I walk out to... of there and you learned who they are. How, mm -hmm. the, how did you become this person? You grew up, most of these people grew up with nothing right. and had started a business with nothing. And I'm fascinated. How do you build a billion-dollar business? How did, who did you hire? How did you, when you made your first sale? Well, who, who sold the labels in? Did you need to hire 10 people? Did, how much money did you need to borrow? How do you do this? How did it go to the next step? And how did it go to that? You know, to hear Michael Kors tell his story about being on the, you know, ringing the bell when the, the, the stock went public. Right. You know, and his mother looking up at him at the podium going, fix your tie. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, he said it was better than his bar mitzvah. That's you know, hilarious. And, I mean, wonderful stories of these people's lives and careers. So we have to get this stuff. Uh, we have to free the content, get it out from behind well, wherever it is. It. And uh, we'll, we'll help you do that. That'll be easy enough to do. So I only have you for a limited amount of time. And I wanted to get to my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. So we'll put you on the hot seat uh -oh. for a few minutes. Let's start with a, an easy one. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about Fern Malice. Hmm. What is the most? I mean, I'm really a, a softy and a real pussycat. People think I'm. Your reputation tough. is you're a tough cookie. Yeah, but I'm you not. tell me it's I'm marshmallow not. inside. Yeah. All right, that's good to know. Your assistant is laughing at you behind your back, just so you know. Does he agree with that? <laughs> um, who were some of your early mentors? Who influenced your career? You know, I'd have to say my dad, my uncles, um, my my sisters. Um, you know, the family around me. There were there were a few in business, but yeah, I I never was that like attach myself to somebody. What about designers? Who influenced the way you look at clothing and fashion? All, all of them. all of them, <laughs> all of the above. I'm, I'm Madeline Albright here. So um, let's talk about books. Not the one you uh, wrote. We'll include that in all of our links. But what are some some of your favorite books? What do you read to relax? Uh, fashion, non-fashion, fiction. Well, you know what I read to relax are you know. Three or four newspapers every every day. No, I said to relax, me, to not rel to make yourself yeah. crazy. Um, but you know, one of my favorite books of all time is a book called A Thousand White Women." Never heard of it. It is so good. 
get it on Amazon. 1,000 White Women. What's it about? It's about a time when President Grant was the president. and mm-hmm. the, A century ago. And they were looking to assimilate some of the Indian tribes uh-huh. and, buy, and take their land, basically. Um, so there was a deal struck between um, some of the Indian um, chiefs to give— well, with the chiefs and the administration— to give them the tribes a thousand white women to become part of their tribes to assimilate the cultures, huh. it's quite fascinating. Huh. But I've also it. just starting the um, becoming Michelle Obama's book, which is best-selling book in 2018, incredible. and I think it was released in either end of November or December. It yeah. just I blew went up. went to see her talk at Barclays Center. Uh huh. And it how was she's that? great. I've met her and. Uh, couple of times and she uh, extraordinary dress is very nice sharp dresser well she was very important to the fashion industry was she why is that oh she wore so many young designers and unknown designers and -and up-and-coming designers and established designers and she had no idea fashion was a huge messaging uh for her when was the last time we saw a first lady who did that is that jackie o jackie was an important one um or then it wasn't O, but it was Jackie, Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy, yes. Um, I think Michelle Obama, well, you know, Nancy Reagan had her uh-huh. fashion moments with um, Galanos and certain mm-hmm. designers that she wore and Arnold Scazzi. And, um, but Michelle Obama was a champion of the American fashion industry. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. Um, so what are you excited about in the fashion industry right now? Um, I'm excited. I'm excited about seeing what's going to be coming up in the next few weeks and how things are going to evolve and change. And is this an import, important fashion, sh- especially important fashion show for 2019, or is this? Well, it's the first of this year. It's the you know it's the fall collections that we're going to be seeing. Um, I mean, it's Fashion Week. It's the, there's another one going to be in September. So. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. You know, I wish I, I, I can't, I don't remember something where I could say I really failed at it. I mean, I, I, I've been a good, good girl. Um, you know, I <laughs> well, think, I don't mean a bit. I mean, sometimes you try something and it doesn't work out and there's a life lesson in it. Not necessarily good versus bad, but gee, that didn't turn out the way I was hoping. But here's my takeaway. The most recent one was the chicken soup I made last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a really expensive free-range chicken, uh-huh. and it was tasteless. So it, the soup wasn't as good as my normal chicken soup. Really? Because it just didn't have all that fat, and it just, you know, the chicken didn't fall gotcha. apart the same way. So that was a that, mini that's failure. <laughs> um, what do you do for fun? What do you do outside of work to either relax or, you know, stay busy and interested? What what? What non-fashion stuff keeps you occupied? I, mean, I have a house out in the East End, and I love going out there. Thank God, it keeps me sane. Right, and it's on a lake, and I just so enjoy being there. I'm a very good gardener, uh-huh. and I do like cooking on the weekends, in spite of my not so great chicken soup. Have you become a year-round uh, Hamptonite? Because uh, yeah. that's been more and more. Oh, these totally. Days. Yeah. Oh, for years, I think. It mostly became a much more year-round after 9-11, I'd say. But, um, I never thought about that. I, I, want, I think you might be right about that. Because people started moving out there and getting out there and living out there. 
But um, yeah, I've, I've had that house since I was at the CFDA, and mm -hmm. I remember a moment when I thought, I can't do this. I'm not married. Why am I buying a house by myself? Right. And I said, what am I going to have at the end of this 10 years here? A, a lot of clothes to show for it? <laughs> you know, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. So what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate who's interested in a career in fashion? I'd say why. <laughs> um, I'd say, you know, like every other thing you're interested in, become a sponge. Just absorb it all and just shut up a little bit and listen. You know, yeah. just listen. You don't you don't really have the answers to everything um, as, as much as they think they do. Uh, I, I And I think we need to, at some point, also listen more to some of these millennials. Mm -hmm. And finally, what is it that you know about the world of fashion and marketing today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were really gearing up your career? It's hard to say because I I wish 30 years ago I understood technology the way we have it now because it's 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 just so different. Mm. But if I could have done something differently then, I would have learned more about finance and business and numbers. I mean, I never took that very seriously. I always said, "Oh, I'm on the creative side. Let somebody else worry about right. that." And I think that's important to always have a an understanding and a grip on the financial implications inside of everything you're working on. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Fern Malice. She is the head of Fern Malice LLC, as well as the creator of Fashion Week, runs the fashion icons with Fern Malice at the 92nd Street Y. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 or so of these conversations we've put together over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. If you're not happy with this show, well, write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net and tell us why. If you are happy, go to Apple iTunes and give us a good review. We'd appreciate that. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is our producer. Caroline O'Brien is my audio engineer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.